from Gaius Plinius Caecilius Secundus, better known as Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia and Pontus, to the Emperor Trajan around 110 AD. In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice more, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserved chastisement. A placard was put up, without any signature, accusing a large number of persons by name. Those who denied they were or had ever been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for that purpose, together with those of the gods and who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts, it is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing. These I thought it proper to discharge. They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt, or their error was, that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it is their custom to separate, and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. I had forbidden political associations, I judged it so much more than necessary to extract the real truth, with the assistance of torture from two female slaves who were styled deaconesses, but I could discover nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition. For the matter seemed to me well worth referring to you, especially considering the numbers endangered. Persons of all ranks and ages, and of both sexes are, and will be, involved in the prosecution. For this contagious superstition is not confined to the cities only, but is spread through the villages and rural districts. It seems possible, however, to check and cure it. As you can see, being Christian in the early days was not for the faint of heart. It's been almost 2,000 years since the beginning of Christianity. Contrary to popular claims, there aren't 33,000 denominations. The World Christian Encyclopedia reached that figure by applying the word denomination in as looser terms as possible. That isn't to say the teachings of Christ haven't been interpreted in thousands of different ways throughout history, though. It's often wondered, what if we could go back in time to see exactly how life functioned in the early churches, how the people acted on the teachings of Jesus and his apostles, how did they worship when they gathered together? By reading the words of our ancestors, we can grow to understand how those who studied under the apostles believed scripture should be lived on earth. Oh boy, this is going to be a long video. Sawete amiki. I'm Patricius, and I'd like to talk about our heritage. 
Christians are adopted by God to be his children, as Jesus taught us. We dare to call God Abba, or Father. Christ established his church on earth to guide people towards our salvation, our home that is heaven. Christian history is long and complicated. A lot has happened in the past 2,000 years. Factions emerged, arguments broke out, and at times wars were even fought between us. When Jesus asked his apostles, Who do you say that I am? Simon replied, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And I say to you, you are Petros, and on this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take two or three others along with you, so that every fact may be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. Even in the original Greek, You'll notice that whenever Jesus talks about the church, he says the word singular, ecclesian or ecclesia. They're both just different forms of the singular tense. Every time he says the church or my church, ever churches. How to interpret this in modern times really depends on who you ask. Both Catholic and Orthodox churches claim to be the original church the structured, invisible, organized body that Jesus himself established 2,000 years ago. Other denominations' explanations are far more nuanced. I've come across two main answers for this among non-Catholic and non-Orthodox churches. The first is that Jesus established an invisible union of Christians around the world, not limited to one specific denomination, but a coalition of believers with no single authority on earth. The other view can take on a few different forms. Many denominations emerging from the Reformation or since claim that the original Christian doctrines had been gradually corrupted by the Catholic and Orthodox's once united church. They claim they just wanted to get back to what the original Christians believed and how they worshipped. Branching off this are far less common ideas, such as Baptist successionism, an idea put forward by some Baptists historically that their church dates back to the time of Christ, and that it was the true church that was supposedly suppressed by the Catholic Church repeatedly throughout history. Those two main ideas, of the church being invisible, and of the gradual corruption of doctrine, are both often held at once. In discussions on which denomination is closest to what Christ intended, People tend to want to look backwards and draw a connection to the early Christians. This is one of the claimed goals of the Reformation, a return to what the original Christians were like. We see other claims made later by a new emerging groups, such as Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. On the other side, Catholic and Orthodox churches will point to apostolic succession, the claim that our bishops were ordained by bishops, who were ordained by bishops, and so forth, in an unbroken line, 
that leads back to the first bishops, the twelve apostles, those who were chosen by Jesus personally. This video's purpose is not to condemn churches that have more recently developed practices. There are many devout people filled with the love of God across all the Christian spectrum. The problem arises in that many very different churches have all claimed to be the closest to those Christians in the very early days. I want to take you back in time to let the writings of the earliest Christians tell us how they worshipped in their own words. They had a lot of beliefs, and I would not be able to do justice to all of them in just one video, so instead this will focus on what happened when the first Christians, those of the first 150 years AD, gathered together, along with some of the beliefs that were closely tied to these gatherings. At another point in the future, I hope to cover each of the main beliefs in individual videos of their own, but for now we'll stick to the main practices. I'm not going to ask you to trust me. I want the words of our spiritual ancestors to speak for themselves. There will be a link to each one of my sources in the description below so you can check them out yourself. Most of our focus will be on the various letters and writings that emerged in the first 150 years AD. A lot happened after that, but the later we look, the more people could accuse these doctrines and letters of being corrupted. The other reason is that St. Polycarp of Smyrna died around 155 AD. This was a person who two different ancient sources, Tertullian and Irenaeus, both claim was a disciple of St. John, the beloved apostle, the last of the twelve to move on to his heavenly home. According to the martyrdom of Polycarp, the student of St. John was 86 years old when he was killed, making them quite probably the last person on earth to have known and studied under one of the twelve apostles. After 155 AD, there was no longer anyone on earth who had been taught by those who had been taught by Jesus. We're going back a very long time. In the very early days, there was a lot about the nature of Christ that wasn't really understood yet. This was before the first complete Bibles emerged. The canon of scripture wasn't even settled yet. Some believed the book of Enoch, or 2nd Esdras, to be Old Testament scripture, which only a few smaller eastern churches do today. Some thought the epistle of Barnabas, or the shepherd of Hermas, were inspired New Testament scripture. Individual communities had access to different amounts of individual scriptural books. This was before they had been put into codex form, the way pages and books are compiled today. Scripture then was in the form of vast libraries of scrolls, wealthier and better connected churches having access to more of these scrolls than others. The scrolls had to be copied by hand. Modern cheap paper wasn't available either, so most had either had to be written on parchment or papyri, both of which were very expensive to produce. Jimmy Aiken, using methodology developed by E. Randolph Richards, estimated that making a copy of just the Gospel of Mark, the shortest gospel in the first century, would have cost about 1,380 modern US dollars. Now, an unskilled laborer at the time earned about 60 modern US dollars a day. In order for churches to have any access to scripture, they needed either a lot of lower and middle class people to pull their resources, or since the Roman Empire was very unequal, a very wealthy patron. We take for granted how easy it is to access a Bible today. 
it wasn't that way for the first Christians. Try to imagine yourselves in their place. Persecution is believed to have occurred in waves. Sometimes it was localised in a province or city, other times it was widespread, and other times in places Christianity was tolerated. Early Christians often had to meet in secret. The oldest purpose-built Christian church we know about was still more than a century away, the Akaba Church in Jordan. Christians had to meet in secret most of the time, often in someone's house. Purpose-built churches, understandably, only became more common once Christianity became much more tolerated by society. Before we look at non-biblical sources, we can gather some information from the New Testament. The Acts of the Apostles begins right after Luke's Gospel ends. One of the matters that's sorted in the first chapter is what happens to the Twelve Apostles now that Judas is dead. The eleven remaining Apostles think back to Psalm 109 and believe that this verse was a prophecy and a guide. Appoint an evil one over him, an accuser, to stand at his right hand, that he may be judged and found guilty, that his plea may be in vain. May his days be few, may another take his office. With this in mind, St. Peter says in Acts one twenty one. Therefore, it is necessary that one of the men who accompanied us the whole time the Lord Jesus came and went among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day on which he was taken up from us, become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of one of these two you have chosen to take the place in his apostolic ministry from which Judas turned away to go to his own place. Then they gave lots to them, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was counted with the eleven apostles. This is an interesting situation. They could have left Judas's place unfilled and no one would have questioned it. Yet, St. Peter believed that someone had to succeed the office he left vacant. The Book of Acts also gives a couple mentions of the presbyteroi. We'll see these words coming up a lot. Episcopoi, presbyteroi, and diaconoi. Put simply, episkopos, or episkopoi in plural, is usually translated either as overseer or bishop. Presbyteros, or presbyteroi, is usually translated either as elder, presbyter, or priest. Diakonos, or diakonoi, is usually translated either as servant or deacon. Because modern translations tend to use any of these meanings, depending on who's doing the translating, for the sake of simplicity, I'll stick to the Greek for the most part, since the name of the role isn't as important as what their function was. Acts 15 talks about the Council of Jerusalem, where the apostles and the other very early Christians gathered to discuss whether Gentile converts had to be subject to parts of the Mosaic Law. The apostles and the presbyteroi met together to see about this matter. Then the apostles and presbyteroi, in agreement with the whole church, decided to choose representatives and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The ones chosen were Judas, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers. 
This is a letter delivered by them, the apostles and the presbyteroi, your brothers, to the brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia of Gentile origin. Greetings. There isn't much we can gather from this, other than presbyteroi mentioned for the first time. We don't know much about them from just this passage. We don't really know who they are, but they were distinct from the apostles. Later on in Acts 20, we can learn that the church in Ephesus also had presbyteroi, and it's implied they had some sort of special role. From Miletus, he had the presbyteroi of the church at Ephesus summoned. Moving on to 1 Corinthians, we can read St. Paul's pleas for Christian unity. I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same purpose. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are rivalries among you. I mean that each of you is saying, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is something that sadly only got worse over time. Now in regard to the matters about which you wrote, it is a good thing for a man not to touch a woman. But because of cases of immorality, every man should have his own wife, and every woman her own husband. This I say by way of concession, however, not as a command. Indeed, I wish everyone to be as I am, but each has a particular gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now to the unmarried and to widows I say, it is a good thing for them to remain as they are, as I do, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be on fire. I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, and how he may please the Lord. But a married man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and he is divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy in both body and spirit. A married woman, on the other hand, is anxious about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, provided that it be in the Lord. She is more blessed, though, in my opinion, if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Celibacy was not required for priests at the time. Some of the apostles we know were married or widowed. St. Paul, however, says celibacy is still a thing to be praised, as it allows people to devote themselves entirely to God. This is the justification the Catholic Church has in requiring that priests not marry. St. Paul was celibate. It wasn't a mandate at the time, but he encouraged it. We can also see that the early church practiced the Eucharist, which is sometimes called Communion, or the Lord's Supper. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When you meet in one place, then, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own supper, and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. For I received from the Lord what I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. A person should examine himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This final point is why the Catholic Bishop of San Francisco has recently banned Nancy Pelosi from receiving the Eucharist because of her strong pro-abortion policies. It's because that bishop takes these words quite literally. Catholic and Orthodox bishops believe this passage is evidence that the bread and wine becomes literally the body and blood of Jesus. Protestant views on this tend to vary quite considerably, some being very close to Catholic and Orthodox understanding, whereas others are on the other side of the spectrum, seeing this is just a symbol. And there's also everything in between. This is something we'll come back to. Moving on to St. Paul's first letter to Timothy, he starts talking about episcopoi and diaconoi. This saying is trustworthy. Whoever aspires to the office of episcopon desires a noble task. Therefore, an episcopos must be irreproachable, married only once, temperate, self-controlled, decent, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not aggressive, but gentle, not contentious, not a lover of money. Similarly, diaconoi must be dignified, not deceitful, not addicted to drink, not greedy for sordid gain, holding fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Moreover, they should be tested first. If there is nothing against them, let them serve as diaconoi. There are people who say that early Christian churches were a chaotic mess with no clearly defined roles or leadership. St. Paul here would seem to disagree. The office of Episcopon was something one had to aspire to. There is more. Let no one have contempt for your youth, but set an example for those who believe in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Timothy was young, or at least younger than people expected he was, yet he was an episcopon, suggesting, at least some of the time, it wasn't determined simply by who was oldest. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was conferred on you through the prophetic word, with the imposition of the hands of the presbyterate. Timothy was ordained by the laying on of hands from presbyteroi. Laying on of hands is an ancient practice of ordination, the dedication of one to a role of spiritual leadership. If we look back all the way to Deuteronomy 34, we see the same thing happening. 
Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, since Moses had laid hands upon him, and so the Israelites gave him their obedience, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses ordained Joshua as his successor, the new leader of the Israelites. We see the same practice in the early church, where St. Peter was telling Timothy, or reminding him that he was made an episcopon after the laying on of hands and the reception of the Holy Spirit from the presbyter Roy. This is important. This is the way in the ancient days God wished the leaders of Israel to be ordained. This practice is still going on in the apostolic churches. Only those ordained in this way can ordain others. The apostles received their ordination from Jesus directly, and they ordained new priests and new bishops, as we see here. The apostles' original ordination from Jesus is seen near the end of John's Gospel. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. This is distinct from Pentecost, which was a general reception of the Holy Spirit by all present. Here, this was a special reception of the Holy Spirit that was just for the apostles. It was their commissioning, and it was when they were given the ability to forgive the sins of others. We're also given our first indication of some of the functions of the Presbyteroi in Timothy's letter. Presbyteroi who preside well deserve double honour, especially those who toil in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is threshing, and a worker deserves his pay. I charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Do not lay hands too readily upon anyone, and do not share in another's sins. Keep yourself pure. Timothy, as an episcopon, was ordained by Presbyteroi by the laying on of hands. Now we see that he ordains new Presbyteroi by laying hands on them. These Presbyteroi are in a lower leadership role, involved with teaching and preaching. Presbyteroi were priests. Priests ordained by episcopoi, or by the apostles directly through the laying on of hands. Those apostles received their ordination directly from Jesus. In his letter to Titus, St. Paul talks again about good character traits. This time, though, he also talks about those of Presbyteroi. For in this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set right what remains to be done and appoint presbyters in every town as I directed you on condition that a man be blameless, married only once, with believing children who are not accused of licentiousness or rebellious. The fact that Titus was there to discern who to appoint as presbyteros indicates that, despite literally translating as elder, it was probably not just the oldest people in the congregation, otherwise they would automatically be made leaders on account of their age. It suggests there was some discretion on Titus's part as to who should be a presbyteros and who should not. While many of them, maybe even all of them, could have been elderly, it suggests that elder was a title, not a literal description. And about bishops, 
St. Paul says to Titus. A bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless, not arrogant, not irritable, not a drunkard, not aggressive, not greedy for sordid gain, but hospitable, a lover of goodness, temperate, just, holy, and self-controlled. Moving on to the letter of James, he tells us some of the other roles of Presbyteroi. Is anyone among you sick? He should summon the Presbyteroi of the church, and they should pray over him, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. James also gives us something we haven't discussed yet. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous person is very powerful. This is very interesting. It's not easy to talk about one's own faults, but it seems as though the ancient Christians did not just confess their sins to God alone. It's hard to know exactly what James meant by this, as it's a single verse that's written more as a reminder than an explanation. That's about all we can get out of the New Testament letters on this question, but there is a lot more out there. To get a better idea of how the first Christians worshipped and organised themselves, let's have a look at what those writing just a few decades after St. Paul said. The first epistle of Clement is an interesting letter. It was written on behalf of the Church of Rome to the church in Corinth. According to the text, it was written to the same Corinthian church that St. Paul wrote to in the 1st and 2nd Corinthians. This letter is a response to a previous letter sent from the church in Corinth. There was an uprising among some of the members of the church who overthrew and ousted their leadership. Why the Corinthians then wrote to Rome is a mystery, as that letter is lost. It's possible their new leadership was seeking legitimacy, or perhaps some in the church didn't want to go along with the coup, and were asking for help. We can only guess. The church in Rome wrote a scathing response, which strongly condemned those involved in the coup. Some have dated this letter to around 90 AD, but their reasons are quite weak. Those who propose this date take the author's claim of sudden and successive calamitous events to mean that they had to be referring to Domitian's persecution. This is despite the fact that Domitian is never mentioned, and there's no detail given about what the sudden and successive calamitous events could be. They don't say anything about current persecutions. In fact, the only other evidence that is put forward for this date is the author, Clement, whom ancient historians consider to be the Pope who reigned around 90 AD. Christian historians writing a few decades later attribute this letter to Clement, but the author of the text never identifies themselves, other than saying they are writing on behalf of the church in Rome. Though there's nothing to indicate that anyone else might have written it instead, its attribution to Clement isn't the strongest. The other possibility is that Clement might have written it before becoming the head bishop of Rome. All it says is that it was written on the Roman church's behalf, 
the more likely date based on information within the text would seem to argue that it's written either just before 70 AD or in the early part of 70 AD. This is because the author talks about the sacrifices offered in the temple in Jerusalem in the present tense. This was impossible after the Romans razed the city and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. The author also mentions that two pillars of the church, Saints Peter and Paul, were martyred by this point, and the text implies that it happened quite recently, which would also seem to indicate some date of around 65 to 70 AD. The author doesn't mention any notable figures having been martyred since then. He also spends a lot of time going through Old Testament examples of the proud who refused to listen to God and were cast down and destroyed. Despite all the time he spends on this, he doesn't mention Jerusalem being cast down and destroyed for rejecting Jesus. Arguments from silence are generally pretty weak and difficult to use. There are often other possible explanations, but it would seem like the destruction of Jerusalem would have been something he would have wanted to include if he knew about it. Christian writers after 70 AD did attribute Jerusalem's destruction to them having rejected and killed Christ. Though it's not possible to know for sure, the evidence does seem to indicate this letter was probably written either in 70 AD or just before. Why did I just go on a big rant about the dating of this letter? That'll be important later. The Church of God which sojourneth in Rome, to the Church of God which sojourneth in Corinth, to them that are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from Almighty God through Jesus Christ be multiplied. Owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events which have happened to ourselves, we feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us, and especially to that shameful and detestable sedition, utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. For you did all things without respect of persons, and walked in the commandments of God, being obedient to those who had rule over you, and giving all fitting honour to the presbyteroi among you. Every kind of honour and happiness was bestowed upon you, and then was fulfilled that which was written. My beloved ate and drank, and was enlarged, and became fat and kicked. Hence flowed emulation and envy, strife and sedition, persecution and disorder, war and captivity. So the worthless rose up against the honoured, those of no reputation against those as were renowned, the foolish against the wise, the young against those advanced in years. And Cain said to Abel his brother, Let us go out into the field. And it came to pass, while they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. You see, brethren, how envy and jealousy led to the murder of a brother. Through envy also our father Jacob fled from the face of Esau his brother. Envy made Joseph be persecuted unto death, and to come into bondage, 
Envy compelled Moses to flee from the face of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, when he heard those words from his fellow countrymen. Who made you judge and ruler over us? Will you kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? On account of envy, Aaron and Miriam had to make their abode without the camp. Envy brought down Dathan and Abiram alive to Hades through the sedition which they excited against God's servant Moses. Through envy, David not only underwent the hatred of foreigners, but was persecuted by Saul, king of Israel. Interesting, isn't it? The authors compared the Corinthian youth rising up against their leaders with Cain's murder of Abel and these other Old Testament figures to which pride and envy led them to do other terrible things. If, as some suggest, the early Christian churches were unstructured anarchy with no assigned roles, then what is the author talking about condemning the Corinthians for their envy of their leaders? He then continues on comparing those rebellious to those who killed St. Peter and St. Paul. But not to dwell on, upon ancient examples, let us come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let us take the noble examples furnished in our own generation. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us see before our eyes the illustrious apostles, Peter, through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labours, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of the patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity. If you're still not convinced the church was ordered, he goes on to say, let us then, men and brethren, with all energy act the part of soldiers, in accordance with his holy commandments. Let us consider those who serve under our generals, with what order, obedience, and submissiveness they perform the things which are commanded them. All are not prefects, nor commanders of a thousand, nor a hundred, nor fifty, and the like. But each one in his own rank performs the things commanded by the king and the generals. The great cannot subsist without the small, nor the small without the great. Then he goes on to compare the church leadership structure to the contemporary Jewish priesthood. He says, Those, therefore, who present their offerings at the appointed times are accepted and blessed, for inasmuch as they follow the laws of the Lord, they sin not for his own peculiar services are assigned to the high priest, and their own proper place is prescribed to the priests, and their own special ministrations devolve on the Levites. The layman is bound by the laws that pertain to laymen. Let every one of you, brethren, give thanks to God in his own order, living in all good conscience, with becoming gravity and not going beyond the rule of the ministry prescribed to him. Not in every place, brethren, are the daily sacrifices offered, or the peace offerings, or the sin offerings, and the trespass offerings, but in Jerusalem only. And even there they are not offered in any place, but only at the altar before the temple, which is offered being first carefully examined by the high priest and the ministers already mentioned. 
Those, therefore, who do anything beyond that which is agreeable to his will are punished with death. You see, brethren, the greater the knowledge that has been vouchsafed to us, the greater also is the danger to which we are exposed. That was the part talking about the Jewish korban sacrifice still as an ongoing thing, which was impossible after the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in 70 AD. Bringing it back to Christianity, he says, The apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ from God. Christ, therefore, was sent by God, and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments, then, were made in an orderly way, according to the will of God. Having therefore received their orders, and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and established in the will of God, with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labours, having first proved them by the Spirit to be episcopoi and diaconoi, of those who should afterwards believe. Nor was this any new thing, since indeed many ages before it was written concerning episcopoi and diaconoi, for thus says the scripture in a certain place, I will appoint their episcopoi in righteousness, and their diaconoi in faith. The churches were not egalitarian communes with no defined roles. They were ordered and structured with appointed leadership. As the author, writing on the behalf of the Church of Rome, says, Jesus chose the apostles. The apostles went and chose the people to be bishops in the cities they visited, as well as deacons. Again, the author likens church leadership to the very structured Jewish priesthood. For when rivalry arose concerning the priesthood, and the tribes were contending among themselves as to which of them should be adorned with that glorious title, he commanded the twelve princes of the tribes to bring their rods, each one being inscribed with the name of the tribe. And he took them and bound them, and sealed them with the rings of the princes of the tribes, and laid them up in the tabernacle of witness on the table of God. And having shut the doors on the tabernacle, he sealed the keys, as he had done with the rods, and said to them, Men and brethren, the tribe whose rod shall blossom has God chosen to fulfill the office of the priesthood, and to minister unto him. And when the morning had come, he assembled all Israel, six hundred thousand men, and showed them the seals of the princes of the tribes, and opened the tabernacle of witness, and brought forth the rods, and the rod of Aaron, which found not only to have blossomed, but to bear fruit upon it. What think ye, beloved? Did not Moses know beforehand that this would happen? Undoubtedly he knew, but he acted thus, that there might be no sedition in Israel, and that the name of the true and only God might be glorified. To him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. The next point is very interesting and has a lot of implications. Our apostles also knew, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. For this reason, therefore, inasmuch as they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those already mentioned, and afterwards gave instructions that, when these should fall asleep, 
other approved men should succeed them in their ministry. We are of opinion, therefore, that those appointed by them, or afterwards by other eminent men with the consent of the whole church, and who have blamelessly served the flock of Christ in a humble, peaceful, and disinterested spirit, and have for a long time possessed the good opinion of all, cannot be justly dismissed from their ministry. The author of this epistle believes in apostolic succession, that the bishops were the successors of the bishops, successors of bishops who were appointed by the apostles themselves, with those twelve appointed by Jesus. The people in the church of Corinth broke that chain by overthrowing the bishops who were the legitimate heirs to that office. The author considers it not simply a leadership change, but turning away from those who inherited the office of the apostles, thereby turning away from God. Take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had formed among you. For it is better that a man should acknowledge his transgressions than that he should harden his heart, as the hearts of those were hardened who stirred up sedition against Moses, the servant of God, and whose condemnation was made manifest. For they went down alive into Hades, and death swallowed them up. Again, comparing the bishops to the Jewish priesthood, he says that the Corinthian rebellion against their bishops was equivalent to the Israelite rebellion against Moses, a rebellion which caused the ground to open up and swallow the rebels whole. You, therefore, who laid the foundation of the sedition, submit yourselves to the presbyteroi, and receive correction so as to repent, bending the knees of your hearts, learn to be subject, laying aside the proud and arrogant self-confidence of your tongue, for it is better for you that you should occupy a humble but honourable place in the flock of Christ, than that, being highly exalted, you should be cast down from the hope of his people. If, however, any shall disobey the words spoken by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgression and serious danger. But we shall be innocent of this sin, and instant in prayer and supplication, shall desire that the Creator of all preserve unbroken the computed number of his elect in the whole world through his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Joy and gladness will you afford us, if you become obedient to the words written by us, and through the Holy Spirit root out the lawless wrath of your jealousy, according to the intercession which we have made for peace and unity in this letter. Pay attention to how authoritative this is. The author, writing on behalf of the Church of Rome, is telling them to submit to their priests, not asking them. The Church of Rome is telling them to lay aside their pride. The church in Rome is telling the Corinthians that these words are written by them, but from the Holy Spirit. This is why the dating of this letter becomes very interesting. The church in Rome is asserting themselves as one with authority over others, and they were written too to sort out this matter by the Corinthians, while at least one apostle was still alive. 
In 70 AD, St. John, the author of the gospel that bears his name, was still alive, either in Ephesus or Patmos. The exact year of his exile was not clear, but he was alive. He was far closer to Corinth than Rome was. And yet, those who in Corinth who wrote the initial letter chose to write to Rome rather than to him. It's not that St. John couldn't respond. He was able to write the book of Revelation either around this time or a few decades later. Whether or not you accept the authority of the Pope, the first epistle of Clement suggests that the church in Rome, even in the apostolic age, held some authority over other churches. Next, let's jump ahead in time a few decades to the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch. These letters are traditionally dated to around 108 AD, though some scholars suggest it's a little bit later. St. Ignatius of Antioch was an episcopos of well, Antioch. While he was on his way to Rome to be publicly executed, he wrote seven letters. Six of them were addressed to churches along the way. Churches in modern-day Turkey and the church in Rome. The final letter he wrote was to Polycarp, the same Polycarp who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle. There are too many letters to spend much time going into each of them. They all have quite similar themes as well. In most of them, he greets people by name and talks about situations that are happening within their churches, about his upcoming martyrdom, which he wasn't afraid of. With a heart full of love of Christ, he looked forward to the day he could die on account of the name of Jesus, even going so far as to ask people not to interfere with the Roman authorities on this matter. Let's have a look at his letter to the Ephesians first, and you can start to understand the common themes. It is therefore befitting that you should in every way glorify Jesus Christ, who hath glorified you, that by a unanimous obedience ye may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, and may all speak the same thing concerning the same thing, and that, being subject to the episcopos and the presbyteroi, ye may in all respects be sanctified. But inasmuch as love suffers me not to be silent in regard to you, I have therefore taken upon me first to exhort you that ye should all run together in accordance with the will of God. For even as Jesus Christ, our inseparable life is the manifested will of the Father, as also Episcopoi, settled everywhere to the utmost bounds of the earth, are so by the will of Jesus Christ. He too identifies episcopoi, or bishops, as being the leadership of the church that needs to be held in loving obedience, and the presbyteroi, the priests. In fact, he takes being subject to the church's appointed leadership very seriously. Let no man deceive himself. If anyone not be within the altar, he is deprived of the bread of God. For if the prayer of one or two possesses such power, how much more that of the bishop and the whole church. He, therefore, that does not assemble with the church, has even by this manifested his pride and condemned himself. For it is written, God resisteth the proud. Let us be careful, then, not to set ourselves in opposition to the bishop, in order that we may be subject to God. 
again, we see more evidence of the church as being very hierarchical and very organized. If everyone was obedient to the bishop, he of course wouldn't have needed to say this, but the fact that we now have two authors putting forward this belief shows that it was the ideal. They believed the will of God, which is why he makes a rather shocking statement that he who sets himself in opposition to the bishop is in opposition to God. He also talks about the gatherings the presbyteroi and episcopoi preside over. So that ye obey the episcopos and the presbyteroi with an undivided mind, breaking one and the same bread, which is the medicine of immortality, and the antidote to prevent us from dying, but that we should live forever in Jesus Christ. If they believed the Eucharist or communion to be just a symbol, he would not have called it the medicine of immortality or the antidote to prevent us from dying. He says it so uncontroversially as a matter of fact statement and a reminder rather than trying to convince them. This alone shows that it was believed by Christians at the time the Eucharist was a very real thing, that the bread was the medicine of immortality, not just a memory or a symbol of the new covenant. His letter to the Magnesians is fairly similar. He brings up one particular situation involving the Magnesian church though, which has caused some apprehension. Now it becomes you also not to treat your episcopos too familiarly on account of his youth, but to yield him all reverence, having respect to the power of God the Father, as I have known even holy presbyteroi do, not judging rashly, from the manifest youthful appearance of the episcopos, but as being themselves prudent in God, submitting to him, or rather not to him, but to the Father of Jesus Christ, the episcopos of us all. It is fitting then, not only to be called Christians, but to be so in reality, as some indeed give one the title of episcopos, but do all things without him, now such persons seem to me to be not possessed of a good conscience, seeing they are not steadfastly gathered together according to the commandment. I exhort you to study, to do all these things with a divine harmony, while your episcopos presides in the place of God, and your presbyteroi in the place of the assembly of the apostles, along with your diaconoi, who are most dear to me, and are entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father before the beginning of time, and in the end was revealed. As therefore the Lord did nothing without the Father, being united to him, neither by himself nor by the apostles, so neither do ye anything without the episcopos or presbyteroi, neither endeavour that anything appear reasonable and proper to yourselves apart, but being come together into the same place, let there be one prayer, one supplication, one mind, one hope, and love and in joy undefiled. There is one Jesus Christ, than whom nothing is more excellent. Do ye therefore all run together as into one temple of God, as to one altar, as to one Jesus Christ, who came forth from one Father, and is with and has gone to one. His final point is one which gives some indication as to which day Christians mark. It's only a hint from now, but there'll be more on this a bit later. 
If, therefore, those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in observance of the Lord's day. In his letter to the Tralians, he makes the same points, and just like Clement compares the Christian bishops and priesthood to the Jewish priesthood, he goes a bit further than Clement did, though. In like manner, let all reverence the diaconoi as an appointment of Jesus Christ, and the episkopos as Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father, and the presbyteroi as the Sanhedrin of God, and assembly of the apostles. Apart from these, there is no church. It was his view that if a group of Christians did not have a bishop, priests and deacons, they did not have a church. In case anyone thinks that core Christian doctrines didn't show up until much later, he says, Stop your ears, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David and was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate. He was truly crucified and truly died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He was also truly raised from the dead, his father quickening him, even as after the same manner his father will so raise up us who believe in him by Christ Jesus, apart from whom we do not possess true life. This was only 70 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and the core beliefs are laid out very simply, the same as Christians today do. This also sinks that whole meme about Britannic or Germanic paganism inspiring Christianity, as it would be a good couple of centuries before Christianity would even reach Britain or Germany, yet the core beliefs are here. Ignatius is hard on himself, not just those receiving his letters. I entreat you in love to hear me, that I may not, by having written, be a testimony against you. And do ye also pray for me, who have need of your love, along with the mercy of God, that I may be worthy of the lot for which I am destined, and that I may not be found reprobate. The lot for which he is destined, he explains, is his upcoming martyrdom. He believed he was admonishing these churches in love the same way St. Paul does in his letters. A modern example would be like a loving parent disciplining their children who insist on trying to play with electrical sockets. His letter to the Philadelphians is the first one in which he doesn't address any in their church by name. Likely he was just less familiar with them. After praising them for their purity and holiness, he writes, Keep yourselves from those evil plants which Jesus Christ does not tend, because they are not the planting of the Father. Not that I have found any division among you, but exceeding purity. For as many as are of God and of Jesus Christ are also with the Episcopos. He then warns them not to go into schism or separation from the authority. Do not err, my brethren. If any man follows him that makes a schism in the church, he shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says something very interesting. Take ye heed, then, to have but one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, 
as there is one Episcopos, along with the Presbyter Roy and Diaconoi, my fellow servants, that so, whatsoever ye do, ye may do it according to the will of God. Just before this, he was talking about how some of them were led away into schism, away from their bishop. He is saying there is only one Eucharist, and that is the Eucharist in union with the bishop. Those who break away do not partake in the true Eucharist, the true flesh and blood of Christ. He then seeks to prove it's not just him who speaks, but the Holy Spirit who spoke these things through him. For when I was among you, I cried, I spoke with a loud voice, Give ye heed to the Episcopos, and to the Presbyteroi, and Diaconoi. Now some suspected me of having spoken thus, as knowing beforehand the division caused among some of you. But he is my witness, for whose sake I am in bonds, that I got no intelligence from any man, but the Spirit proclaimed these words. Do nothing without the Episcopos. Keep your bodies as the temples of God. Love unity. Avoid divisions. Be the followers of Jesus Christ, even as he is of his Father. In the letter to the Smyrnians, one of the first things he writes is against those who think Jesus was resurrected just spiritually. This is not a new heresy. For I know that after his resurrection also he was still possessed of flesh, and I believe that he is so now. When, for instance, he came to those who were with Peter, he said to them, Lay hold, handle me, and see that I am not an incorporeal spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed, being convinced by his flesh and spirit. For this cause also they despised death, and were found its conquerors. And after his resurrection, he did eat and drink with them, and being possessed of flesh, although spiritually he was united to the Father. Then he provides a very interesting insight into the inner thoughts of a soon-to-be martyr. And why have I also surrendered myself to death, to fire, to the sword, to the wild beasts? But in fact, he is near to the sword, is near to God. He that is among the wild beasts is in company with God, provided only he be so in the name of Jesus Christ. I undergo all these things that I may suffer together with him, he who became a perfect man inwardly strengthening me. Again, talking about the Eucharist, he makes his most definitive statement yet. Talking about those who went into schism, he says, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. Those, therefore, who speak against this gift of God incur death in the midst of their disputes. But it were better for them to treat it with respect that they also may rise again. The idea that the Eucharist was just a symbol, or is just the body of Jesus in a vague spiritual way, didn't emerge until many centuries later. The early Christians truly believed, as the Catholic and Orthodox churches and some high Protestant churches do now, that the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ. He then reinforces the need for unity under the bishops, saying, 
let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the Episcopos or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the Episcopos shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be. Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It is not lawful without the Episcopos either to baptize or to celebrate a love feast, but whatsoever he shall approve of, that is also pleasing to God, so that everything that is done may be secure and valid. It is well to reverence both God and the Episcopos. He who honours the Episcopos has been honoured by God. He who does anything without the knowledge of the Episcopos does in reality serve the devil. His letter to Polycarp is interesting, but it covers much of the same ground as his other letters, as well as a lot of things that are outside the scope of this video. I'd encourage you to read it though. The most relevant points in this video, he again states that Christians need to be obedient to their bishops. My soul be for theirs that are submissive to the Episcopos, to the Presbyteroi, and to the Diaconoi, and may my portion be along with them in God. His final letter is to the church in Rome. This letter is very different. Pay attention to the massive change in tone. Ignatius, who is also called Theophoros, to the church which has obtained mercy through the majesty of the Most High Father and Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, the church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him that willeth all things which are according to the love of Jesus Christ our God, which also presides in the place of the report of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honour, worthy of the highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of obtaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy, and which presides over love, is named from Christ and from the Father, which I also salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, to those who are united, both according to the flesh and spirit, to every one of his commandments, who are filled inseparably with the grace of God and are purified from every strange taint. I wish abundance of happiness unblameably in Jesus Christ, our God. This letter doesn't address anyone in Rome by name. There's no mention of the role of Episcopos or Presbyteros either. Some have taken the anti-papacy view, suggesting there was no bishop in Rome at this time. Given his previous statement that without bishop, priest, and deacons there is no church, this would seem unlikely. The far more likely explanation is the simpler one. He was on his way to Rome to be killed for his faith. If he started naming people or pointing out the leadership roles, he would only make them targets as well. His tone is strangely flattering when he addresses them. Through prayer to God, I have obtained the privilege of seeing your most worthy faces, and have even been granted more than I requested, for I hope, as a prisoner in Christ Jesus, to salute you, if indeed it be the will of God that I be thought worthy of attaining unto the end. 
Rather than acting like St. Paul, admonishing the church in Rome for their sins, he begs them not to stop his martyrdom. For it is not my desire to act towards you as a man-pleaser, but as pleasing to God, even as also ye please him. For neither shall I have such another opportunity of attaining to God, nor will ye, if ye na shall now be silent, ever be entitled to the honour of a better work. For if ye are silent concerning me, I shall become God's. But if you show your love to my flesh, I shall again have to run my race. Pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favour upon me than that I be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. That, being gathered together in love, ye may sing praise to the Father, through Christ Jesus, that God has redeemed me, the Episcopos of Syria, worthy to be sent for from the east to the west. It is good to set the world unto God, that I may rise again to him. Even furthering the strong deference to Rome, he says, Ye have never envied anyone, ye have taught others. Now I desire that those things may be confirmed by your conduct, which in your instructions ye enjoin on others. I write to the churches, and impress on them all, that I shall die willingly for God, unless ye hinder me. I beseech of you not to show unseasonable good will towards me. Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts, through whose instrumentality it will be granted of me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray they may be found eager to rush upon me, which I also, I will entice to devour me speedily, and not deal with me as with some whom out of fear they have not touched. But if they be unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me in this, I know what is for my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple, and let no one of things visible or invisible envy me that I should attain to Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me, only let me attain to Jesus Christ. He was not going to his death gladly for an ideology. He was not trying to make himself a spectacle to show his faith to an unbelieving crowd. He was going to death in gladness for a person, the God whom he loved. So there you have the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, one who believed Christians must be in union, that division among Christians are the work of the devil, that to be Christian is to be loyal to the episcopoi, that the Eucharist is officiated by the legitimate episcopoi, or the presbyteroi they authorize is truly the flesh of Jesus. 
he who believes that to die on account of Christ is the greatest honor that anyone can attain. Now we move on to St. Polycarp, who I keep mentioning. He is the friend and fellow bishop of St. Ignatius, and the one that both Tertullian and Irenaeus claim studied directly under St. John the Apostle. He writes to the Philippian church, the same church that St. Paul wrote his New Testament letter to. This letter is the only writing of St. Polycarp that survived to the present day. Polycarp and the Presbyteroi with them, to the Church of God sojourning at Philippi, mercy to you and peace from God Almighty and from the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour be multiplied. Your faith, spoken of in days long gone by, endures even unto now, and brings forth fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death, but whom God raised from the dead, having loosed the bands of the grave. Polycarp's letter makes numerous quotes and paraphrases from many of the New Testament letters, as well as from all four Gospels. What we can gather from this is that it was widely known enough for Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna writing around 105 to 110 AD, to quote and paraphrase scripture to another church, and he expected they would recognize their origin. In describing the characteristics deacons should have, he says, Knowing then that God is not mocked, we ought to walk worthy of his commandment, and glory in like manner should the diaconoi be blameless before the face of his righteousness, as being servants of God in Christ and not of men. They must not be slanderers, double-tongued, or lovers of money, but temperate in all things, compassionate, industrious, working according to the truth of the Lord, who was the servant of all. He speaks along very similar lines to Ignatius. In like manner, let the young men also be blameless in all things, being especially careful to preserve purity and keeping themselves in, as with a bridle, from every kind of evil. For it is well that they should be cut off from the lusts that are of the world, since every lust wars against the spirit, and neither fornicators, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God, nor those who do things inconsistent and unbecoming. Wherefore it is needful to abstain from all these things, being subject to the presbyteroi and diaconoi, as unto God and Christ. The virgins also must walk in a blameless and pure conscience. Polycarp then quotes the Deuterocanonical book of Tobit, which was taken out of Protestant Bibles. When you can do good, defer it not, because arms delivers from death. He then laments a priest among the Philippians who had gone astray from the faith. I am greatly grieved for Walens, who was once a presbyteros among you, because he so little understands the place that was given him in the church. I exhort you, therefore, that you abstain from covetousness, that you be chaste and truthful. Finally, he talks about receiving one of the letters from Ignatius that we've gone through. Both you and Ignatius wrote to me that if anyone went 
from this into Syria, he should carry your letter with him, which request I will attend to if I find a fitting opportunity, either personally or through some other acting for me, that your desire may be fulfilled. The epistles of Ignatius written by him to us, and all the rest of his epistles which we have by us we have sent to you, as you requested. They are subjoined in this epistle, and by them you may be greatly profited, for they treat of faith and patience all the things that tend to edification in our Lord. Any more certain information you may have obtained respecting both Ignatius himself and those that were with him have the goodness to make known to us. Next, we read from a saint who, sadly, only a few scraps of his writings have survived. This is Saint Papias of Hierapolis, Hierapolis, something like that. Not a lot is known about him, but he died sometime between 100 and 130 AD. There's only a few fragments of his writings have survived. They do have some fairly big gaps in them, but we can have a quick look at the parts that are relevant to this video. First, he sheds a fascinating light on what it was like to be taught Christianity before the written Gospels were widespread enough, at a time when Christians had to rely exclusively on preachers and on the Old Testament writings. If, then, anyone who had attended on the presbyteroi came, I asked minutely after their sayings what Andrew or Peter said, or what was said by Philip, or by Thomas, or by James, or by John, or by Matthew, or by any other of the Lord's disciples, which things Aristion and the presbyteros John and the disciples of the Lord say. For I imagined that what was to be got from books was not so profitable to me as what came from the living and abiding voice. While talking about different levels of reward for different people in heaven, he also teaches apostolic succession. The presbyteroi, the disciples of the apostles, say that this is the gradation and arrangement of those who are saved. We'll move on to the Shepherd of Hermas next. It's an interesting piece. It's possible this is the same Hermas who was mentioned in Romans 16.14. Both were influential figures in the church in Rome, though some scholars believe this work was written quite a bit later. Dating ancient texts is quite hard, though, so, I mean, it could be, it might not be. This work is very interesting because some of the early Christians truly believed this was inspired scripture. It was included in the New Testament in the Codex Sinaiticus, one of the oldest complete Bibles that has survived. Even early church figures like St. Irenaeus of Lyon believed it to be genuinely inspired scripture. When the biblical canon of scripture was settled in the 4th century um, in the Council of Rome, except for the Eastern churches who didn't attend, um, it's lo it lost its status as potentially scripture and just became a writing of an early Christian about what he says God revealed to him in a vision. Not every revelation God sends makes it into sacred scripture, but at the same time many claimed revelations are not genuinely supernatural either. For the purposes of this video, whether Hermas received genuine visions or not is irrelevant, because at the very least this work, like the others we've gone into, gives some insight 
and to what the author believed and what he was, the people he was writing to likely believed. Hermas, a former slave in Italy, used the very well-established and ordered structure of the church to spread the message of the visions he claimed to have. Thou shalt therefore write two little books, and shalt send one to Clement, and one to Grapte. So Clement shall send to the foreign cities, for this is his duty, while Grapte shall instruct the widows and the orphans. But thou shalt read the book to the city along with the presbyteroi that preside over the church. Now Clement surfaces again. Interesting how Clement, the bishop of Rome, was asked to send this message to the foreign cities because it was his duty. After fasting often and entreating the Lord to declare unto me the revelation which he promised to show me by the mouth of the aged woman, the way he nonchalantly says he fasted with no qualifiers or explanation suggests that fasting was a fairly common practice of the early church. Next, he's shown a vision of a building made of stone bricks, and an angel begins explaining that this is a symbol for the church. Hear now concerning the stones that go into the building. The stones that are squared and white, and fit together in the joints. These are the apostles, and the episcopoi, and the teachers, and diaconoi, who walked after the holiness of God and exercised their office of episcopon and teacher and diaconoi in purity and sanctity for the elect of God, some of them already fallen asleep while others still living. And because they always agreed with one another, they both had peace among themselves and listened to one another. While the claim that bishops always agreed with one another is probably an exaggeration, Hermas is quite clearly indicating his belief that being bishop, teacher, or deacon is an office, a defined role in the early church. It was his belief that bishops are in close communion with each other, so close as to indicate they would strongly disagree with the modern view that ancient churches were just a disorganized coalition of people with roughly the same beliefs. This is just a short look at this long text, since there's not a lot else that's relevant to this video. Next we'll move on to the Epistle of Barnabas. This was another text that was included in the Codex Sinaiticus. At least some early Christians believed that this as well was inspired scripture before the canon was settled. Some ancient Christians believed it to be the same Barnabas that was mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, but the author never mentions themselves by name. All we can say for sure is that the author was an early Christian who had a great knowledge of and a desire to preach to the Jews and those Christians that believed we still needed to follow the old Mosaic law. The date it was written is similarly difficult to say for sure. Mentions of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple indicates it had to be written after 70 AD, and many scholars put the latest likely date around 130 AD, giving a big 60-year window in which this could have been written. In addressing the Jews, he quotes Isaiah, saying, Nor though you bend your neck like a ring, 
and put upon your sackcloth and ashes, will you call it an acceptable fast? To us, he says, Behold, this is the fast that I have chosen, says the Lord, that a man should humble his soul, but that he should loose every band of iniquity, untie the fastenings of harsh agreements, restore to liberty them that are bruised, tear in pieces every unjust engagement, feed the hungry with your bread, clothe the naked when you see him, bring the homeless into your house. The author had quite a deep understanding of Old Testament scripture. He seems to condemn fasting, however it's suggested that he's referring to those who fast out of tradition while continuing to live in sin. The final stumbling block approaches concerning which it is written, as Enoch says, For this end the Lord has cut short the times and the days, that his beloved may hasten, and he will come to the inheritance. And the prophet also speaks thus, Ten kingdoms shall reign upon the earth, and a little king shall rise up after them, and shall subdue under one three of the kings. He's interestingly quoting the book of Enoch, a book that was considered inspired scripture by some Christians in the early days, but, but today only the Ethiopian and Eritrean Orthodox churches think this should be in the Old Testament. After likening Jesus' death on the cross to Abraham's almost offering his son Isaac, or the Mosaic law of sacrifices of animals, the author then goes on to talk about baptism. Further, what says he? And there was a river flowing on the right, and from it arose trees, and whosoever shall eat of them shall live forever. This means that we indeed descend into the water full of sins and defilement, but come up bearing fruit in our heart, having the fear of God and trust in Jesus in our spirit. This reference to the Old Testament he uses to show baptismal regeneration, the belief that the water of baptism washes away our sins. He then goes on to disagree with claims that the early church worshipped on Saturday, saying, Further, he says to them, Your new moons and your Sabbath I cannot endure. You perceive how he speaks. Your present Sabbaths are not acceptable to me. But that is which I have made, namely this, When giving rest to all things, I shall make a beginning of the eighth day, that is, a beginning of another world. Wherefore also we keep the eighth day with joyfulness, the day also on which Jesus rose from the dead, and when he had manifested himself, he ascended into the heavens. Finally, he ends with a pro-life message. You shall love your neighbor more than your own soul. You shall not slay the child by procuring abortion, nor again shall you destroy it after it is born. The next text we'll look at is the Didache, a very weirdly written word. The word means the teaching in Greek. The Didache is an ancient catechism. It details many of the ancient practices, beliefs, and is a guide to moral living in Christianity. It frequently compares what it calls the way of life 
from the way of death that is sin. So the Didache has been dated to around 50 to 70 AD. Just let that sink in for a minute. This is the two decades in which the Gospels and the New Testament letters have been written. This was out there around the same time. One of the first sections promotes fasting as a holy and pious action. And of these sayings the teaching is this, Bless those who curse you, and pray for your enemies, and fast for those who persecute you. While strictly it tells people to avoid paganism, My child, be not an observer of omens, since it leads the way to idolatry, neither an enchanter, nor an astrologer, nor a purifier, nor be willing to look at these things, for out of all of these idolatry is engendered. The Didache pronounces the need for ongoing repentance. In the church you shall acknowledge your transgressions, and you shall not come near for your prayer with an evil conscience. Acknowledging your transgressions in church is interesting, but it's not exactly clear in what form this is to take place just from reading this passage. Next, we highlight a debate that was ongoing during the era of the New Testament letters, whether it's okay or not to eat food that others had sacrificed to idols. Saint Paul believed it was okay since idols have no real power, but others believed it was a way of supporting idolatry and shouldn't happen. See that no one cause you to err from this way of the teaching, since apart from God it teaches you. For if you are able to bear all the yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you are not able, what you are able, that do. And concerning food, bear what you are able. But against that which is sacrificed to idols, be exceedingly on your guard, for it is the service of dead gods. And, con and concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in living water. But if you have not living water, baptize into other water. And if you cannot, in cold, in, in warm. But if you have not either, pour water thrice upon the head, into the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the baptized, and whatever others can. But you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. The ancient Christian church baptized under the Trinitarian formula, as Jesus commanded in the Gospels. The ancient church also allowed baptism by the pouring of water three times in the head. Though immersion was preferred, it was not seen as necessary. But let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week, but fast on the fourth day and the preparation. This here is evidence that the Catholic and Orthodox churches and traditional High Protestant churches' idea of penance on Fridays can be traced back to the early church. The Wednesday fast has largely been dropped, 
and in many churches, the Friday fast is now just abstaining from meat. But you can see the practice itself of penance on Friday goes all the way back to the very early church. Along with this is an affirmation of Jesus' command to pray the Our Father and to pray it frequently. Neither pray as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, thus pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debt, as we also forgive our debtors. And bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Thrice in the day, thus pray. Finally, we get a description of what goes on during the Christian Sunday gatherings. Now concerning the thanksgiving, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus Christ, your servant, to you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the gift of life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever, even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was thus gathered together and became one. So let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Though the wording of the thanksgiving prayers before the consecration of bread and wine have changed over the centuries, the central message stays the same. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. But after you have filled, thus give thanks. We thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you caused to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, created all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment. They that might give thanks to you, but to us you freely gave spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Tabernacle in our hearts is interesting because that was the Holy of Holies, the place where in the Jerusalem temple they believed God dwelt. By saying this, he is saying that after receiving the Eucharist, God dwells in your heart. But every Lord's Day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one that is at variance with his fellow come together with you until they be reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be profaned. For this is that which was spoken by the Lord, in every place and time offer me a pure sacrifice. 
for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. The Mass is, and always has been, acknowledged as taking part and representing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to God the Father, the same as the Orthodox liturgies. The ancient Christians believed the Mass to be a sacrifice. The ancient Christians believed that to receive the Eucharist in a state of unrepentant sin was to profane that sacrifice, the body and blood of Jesus that was received in the bread and wine, something that the Catholic and Orthodox churches still teach. The last writing we'll be looking at is that from St. Justin Martyr. I'm sure you can figure out how we got that name. His first apology was written around 150 AD. It's the old meaning of apology, that is, a written defense. This letter was written to the Roman authorities, defending Christianity and trying to convince them to stop their persecution of Christians. He writes, To the Emperor Titus Aelius Adrianus Antoninus Pius Augustus Caesar, and to his son Verissimus, the philosopher, and to Lucius, the philosopher, the natural son of Caesar, and the adopted son of Pius, a lover of learning, and to the sacred senate, with the whole people of the Romans, I, Justin, son of Priscus, and grandson of Bacchius, natives of Flavia, Neapolis, in Palestine, present this address and petition on behalf of all nations who are unjustly hated and wantonly abused, myself being one of them. He goes on to condemn paganism, saying, For the truth shall be spoken, since of old these evil demons, affecting apparitions of themselves, boast defiled women and corrupted boys, and showed such fearful sights to men that those who did not use their reason in judging of the actions that were done were struck with terror, and being carried away by fear, and not knowing that these were demons, they called them gods, and gave to each a name which each of the demons chose for himself. Hence we are called atheists, and we confess that we are atheists, so far as gods of this sort are concerned, but not with the respect to the most true God, the Father of righteousness, and temperance, and the other virtues, who is free from all impurity. In explaining the Christian need to practice chastity, he says, Concerning chastity, he uttered such sentiments as these, Whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart before God, and, if your right eye offend you, cut it out, for it is better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than, having two eyes, to be cast into everlasting fire, and, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced from another husband commits adultery, and, there are some who have been made eunuchs of men, and some who were born eunuchs, and some who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, but all cannot receive this saying. St. Justin spends a lot of time proving that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, 
by listing numerous Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled by him. An example of this is, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people, to those who walk in a way that is not good. And again, I gave my back to the scourges and my cheeks to the buffetings. I turned not away my face from the shame of spittings, and the Lord was my helper, therefore I was not confounded, but I set my face as a firm rock, and I knew that I should not be ashamed, for he is near that justifies me. And again, when he says, They cast lots upon my vesture, and pierced my hands and my feet, and I lay down and slept, and rose again, because the Lord sustained me. And again, when he says, They spoke with their lips, they wagged the head, saying, Let him deliver himself. He then goes on to explain some of the practices of Christians, first clearly talking about the need for penance for our sins. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true, and undertake to be able to live accordingly, are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past, we praying and fasting with them. On baptism, he says, Then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves were regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe, and of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. They then receive the washing with water. For Christ also said, Unless you be born again, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in this, he's clearly teaching that baptism regenerates us, that it's done in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit and that it is the act of baptism by which we are born again. On this point, he believes Christian baptism was prophesied by Isaiah. Now, it is impossible for those who have been once been born to enter their mother's wombs, is manifest to all. And those who have sinned and repent shall escape their sins, is declared by Isaiah the prophet. Wash you, make you clean, Put away the evil of your doing from your souls. Learn to do well. Judge the fatherless and plead for the widow. And come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white like wool. And though they be as crimson, I will make them white as snow. Since at our birth we were born without our knowledge or choice, by our parents coming together, and brought up in bad habits and wicked training, in order that we not remain the children of necessity and of ignorance, but may become the children of choice and knowledge, and may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed. If you're going to argue that baptism is nothing but a symbol or a statement of faith with no washing away of sins, you have to explain why Christians almost uniformly disagreed with you for more than 1,500 years, and how even most of the major Protestant churches that emerged in the 16th century still hold this view, or some variation close to it. Back to St. Justin, he says, 
there is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins, the name of God, the Father and Lord of the universe. He who leads the laver, the person that is to be washed, calling him by this name alone. Again, according to St. Justin Martyr's very educated understanding of mid-second century Christianity, being born again is baptism. He then goes on to explain something very interesting. But we, after we have thus washed him, who has been convinced and has assented to our teaching, bring him to the place where those who are called brethren are assembled, in order that we may offer hearty prayers in common for ourselves and for the baptized person, and for all others in every place, that we, may, that we may be counted worthy, now that we have learned the truth by our works, also to be found good citizens and keepers of the commandments, so that we may be saved with an everlasting salvation. Having ended the prayers, we salute one another with a kiss, there is then brought to the president, uh, just a side note, the word he uses literally translates to the one who presides, of the brethren, bread and a cup of wine mixed with water, and he, taking them, gives praise and glory to God, the Father of the universe, through the name of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and offers thanks at considerable length, for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. And when he has concluded the prayers and thanksgivings, all the people present express their assent by saying, Amen. And when the presider has given thanks, and all the people have expressed their assent, those who are called by us, diaconoi, give to each of those present to partake of the bread and wine mixed with water, over which thanksgiving was pronounced. And to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. And this food is called among us the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true, and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration, and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Saviour, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood that Jesus who was made flesh. For the apostles, and the memoirs composed by them, which are called Gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them, that Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, said, This do in remembrance of me, this is my body. And after the same manner, having taken the cup and given thanks, he said, This is my blood and gave it to them alone. And we afterwards continually remind each other of these things. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. 
Then, when the reader has ceased, the presider verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer has ended, bread and wine and water are brought in, and the presider, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the diaconoi. And those who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the presider, who succors orphans and widows and those who, through sickness or other cause, are in want. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Saviour, on the same day rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, and on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So there you have it. St. Justin Martyr's account of exactly what goes on during the early Christian gatherings. He clearly and repeatedly demonstrated a belief in baptismal regeneration, that it's through baptism we're born again, and that the Eucharist is truly transformed into the body and blood of Jesus. If you're Catholic, Orthodox, or High Church Protestant, you'll quickly realize that St. Justin Martyr was describing the Mass. The Mass, which in 150 AD is identical in structure to the Mass today, or the Orthodox Holy Liturgy, or the other names it goes by. In the 1870 years since St. Justin's time, the means of Christian worship among Catholics, Orthodox, and High Church Protestants hasn't changed. This is a very basic overview, and forgive me if some of the details are incorrect or if I miss anything out, but the point is to show that the structure hasn't changed. You might have added in psalm readings or other prayers, but the core structure of what St. Justin Martyr described around 150 AD is the same as it is today in high churches. You may wonder, as some do, why Justin never mentions presbyteroi or episcopoi. Some have said this is evidence that there were no established roles, or that there was no sacerdotal priesthood. But this would disagree with all the other accounts of the early Christians we've gone through. The more likely explanation was simply that he was writing to the very people who were persecuting Christians. It would have been foolish beyond imagining for him to point out that only presbyteroi or episcopoi could actually uh, officiate over these ceremonies, as it would mean that killing the priests and the bishops would effectively put an end to Christian gatherings. Instead, he uses the vague term proestos, which simply means the one who presides or the president, in my research for the making of this, I've not come across another author use the word proestos as a title. That does seem to indicate that 
it was likely not an official title so much as it was just a description, again for the same reason that he was writing to the people who were directly persecuting them. So, what can we conclude from our ancient father's words? The early church was very structured, with well-defined roles of episkopos, presbyteros, and diakonos. Further, it was expected that laity would hold those in authority with reverence and obedience, as obeying the episcopos was seen as the same thing as obeying God. The priesthood in the episcopacy of the early church was often likened to the contemporary Jewish priesthood, but as a way of strengthening its legitimacy. Unity among Christians was also seen as the ideal state, though it's something they struggled to achieve in practice. It was seen as the will of Christ that his body be united in will. The early church thought it extremely important to keep apostolic succession with the episcopoi being seen as the legitimate successors of the office of the apostles, only the legitimate episcopoi and those presbyteroi in communion with them could preside over the Eucharist. The individual congregations of the early church were interconnected. They often sent letters to one another. They were aware of the goings-on in other churches, and they would admonish one another when they failed to live up to their Christian morality. The early church also paid a special homage to the church in Rome, though the extent of this is difficult to tell from just these sources. If you believe that Christ established an invisible, loose confederation-style church, okay, you may be able to make an argument for that from scripture, but this isn't how the early church saw it. They believed that Christ established a visible, organized body that those who broke away from their bishops were thought to have broken away from Christ. The early church baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This baptism was how they became born again. They believed baptism regenerated their souls and washed away their sins. It was preferred that baptism be by immersion, but it was permitted by pouring of water three times on the head. The early Christians did penance and they fasted. At least some of them believed we should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. The early Christians had to repent of their sins and do penance before receiving the Eucharist. The early church celebrated the Mass or the Divine Liturgy. They believed this was a sacrifice, the offering of Jesus' death on the cross, just as the Jewish Corban sacrifice of animals was offered. And just with the Jewish sacrifice, the people making the offering would eat of it. They believed this Eucharist to have truly been the body and blood of Jesus, and that to receive the Eucharist in a state of sin was to commit sacrilege against it. They believed the Eucharist was truly the body and blood of Christ, not a symbol or in a vaguely spiritual way. St. Justin Martyr called it transmutation, the conversion of one substance into another. The real presence in the Eucharist was repeatedly affirmed. The early church encouraged celibacy as a way to devote oneself entirely to God, but it wasn't mandated. The day of worship was definitely Sunday. Now, 
If more modern church practices stir up love of God and people, that's something between them and God. However, if anyone claims to want to get back to what the early church did, they have to consider that the early church was one in which Jesus' body and blood were truly present in the Eucharist, consecrated by bishops and priests who were ordained by the laying on of hands, who, by their ordination, inherited the office of the apostles, a church in which baptism was believed to wash away our previous sins. This was a church that believed it was never the will of God for Christians to break away, and that those that did break away no longer had a valid Eucharist. There was another running theme through most of these letters that I haven't brought up yet. The early Christians had a very high opinion of Scripture. They believed it to be inspired, but Scripture alone was not their ultimate authority. The Episcopoi were. They believed Christ gave ultimate authority to his twelve apostles, and that the Episcopoi, being their successors, inherited that authority. Thus they believed when a few of the Corinthian church led a coup, or those Ignatius was writing to who had been in schism, that their breaking away was breaking away from those that Christ gave legitimate authority to. Thus they believed that those in schism broke away from Christ. In the first verse in this video, St. Peter was given authority to bind and loose, this old phrase meaning to forbid and to permit. Later on again in Matthew's Gospel, the same authority of binding and loosing is given to the other apostles as well. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The early church believed the episcopoi, or the bishops, had succeeded the office of the apostles and kept this authority. Now, the question really is, does the early church continue today? The Catholic and Orthodox churches meet all these criteria. They maintain the same practices and the directly connected beliefs relating to those practices as the early church. Traditional Protestant churches like High Anglican and Lutheran can reasonably claim to meet a lot of the criteria. The main question really comes down to what does it take to lose apostolic succession? It was the successors of the apostles that led the early church. Many churches today claim the successors still lead them in an unbroken chain. An example of this question of what it takes to lose apostolic succession being asked was Pope Leo XIII's papal bull, Apostolicae Curae, back at the end of the 19th century. In this, he claims Anglican ordinations going back to the 16th century have been invalid due to a change in the right of ordination at the time. The Anglican Church, of course, doesn't agree with that. More recent questions are asked regarding the ordination of women in some of these apostolic churches, whether they can validly inherit the office of the apostles, which both the Catholic and Orthodox churches don't believe they can. The Catholic Church does recognise Orthodox ordinations as apostolic succession, but Orthodox churches on Catholic ordinations and succession vary, and are less optimistic. 
this is a very complex question for another time. So, was the early church Catholic or Orthodox or a combination of both? While the filioque was an issue, as well as cultural divides that had been growing for centuries between the Greek and Latin churches, much of the conflict a thousand years ago is the same conflict today over who has the highest spiritual authority on earth. Catholics say the Pope is the successor of St. Peter, the leader of the Apostles, whereas Orthodox tend to claim that the Pope was one of the equal patriarchs. Even today, Catholic and Orthodox churches are very close and much closer than the Catholic and Orthodox churches are to all but the most traditional Protestant churches. This is another question for another time, though. Right at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus prays for us, that is us in the present day and all who followed after his apostles. I pray not only for them, but also for those who believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they see my glory that you gave me, because you loved them before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus prayed that we would all be united as one, in one will, just as he and the Father are united in one will, but are we? Whether you agree or disagree with the conclusions I've drawn from the study of our ancient fathers of the faith, I hope this has at least been interesting. I believe respectful dialogue about our disagreements is essential in an age when arguments tend to devolve into shouting and hatred. Regardless, thank you very much for watching, and until next time, Valete amici. Gloria Patri et Filio et Spiritui Sancto Secult erat in principio, et nunc, et semper, et in saecula saeculorum. Amen.